Jesus is, a, is an interesting figure in our day, right? Like, he continues to be very much, I think, uh, a person that, if you walk around Bloomington, I think a lot of people in Bloomington would say, I like Jesus. I think Jesus is pretty cool. Like, he, he seems pretty all right, you know? I, I'm down with that. But, but yet, like, Christianity, the church, not so much, right? Like, the, the popularity, the interest, the, the, the favor, if you will, in culture for the religion of Christianity and the church itself as an institution is much in decline. But yet Jesus continues to kind of be kind of hip and cool, right? I mean, you hear a lot of people, I, and maybe you've even said this before, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, right? I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Um, and even if you said that, like, one, I don't want to dismiss the reality that that many people have experienced deep wounds um, by the hands of churches, by the hands of church leaders, people from churches. And so I'm not, I don't want to dismiss the reality of that experience. Um, and, and honestly, if that's happened to you on behalf of the church, I think the members of this church would, would love, I would love to just say, forgive us. And, and we, we're sorry that that's happened to you. But there's, there's, a, there's a problem with that statement, right? They'll say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I mean, really what's underneath that is kind of, I think, the whole thing that's happening in our culture. Why Jesus is still cool, Christianity not so much, is we kind of like the Jesus that we can make up, right? We like, we like the Jesus that kind of fits into our life, fits with the things that we're about. The Jesus that will come along and be like our Mr. Rogers, you know, I mean, that's, you know, he's our friend, he's nice, he's good to us. Uh, he never says anything bad to us. You know, he's always right there. He's our best pal, um, but lets me do whatever I want to do with my life, right? That, that kind of Jesus. But the problem is with that is that a Jesus that you make up, um, a Jesus that you've created to kind of fit in with you uh, and, and think, to think like you, to agree with you, to be what you want him to be, um, that kind of Jesus can never change you, Right? It can never bring about any kind of transformation, any kind of growth in your life. I mean, it just leaves you where you're at. Like, you're, you're changing him to keep him okay with you and whatever you feel like doing. Um, and, and, and here's the other problem with that, is that Jesus is not like a mythical being, like a leprechaun or a unicorn, right? That we just be like, I think leprechauns are like this. Or I think unicorns would, would be like this. Because they're not real, right? Uh, we're making them up. We kind of, you know, breathe into them whatever kind of reality we want to breathe into them. But, but Jesus is a real person, right? He, he's a reality. He has his own reality. And, and so you and I, therefore, need to know the real Jesus. We can't just, like, relate to the Jesus we want to. We need to know who he really is, what he said, what he did, what that means for us. And we talked a little bit last week as we started this, this series in the Gospel of Mark of why the Gospel of Mark is such a great place to start seeking to understand the real Jesus. Maybe, you know, for one, for one reason, it's the oldest, um, the first and oldest written account of the life and ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in our text today, Jesus makes his grand entrance on the scene. Right, Mark's Gospel. And in these five short verses that we're going to look at today, we get an enormous view of the real Jesus. So turn, with that, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. Let's stand together. Let's hear from God's Word. Page 836 in those Bibles on your row. Page 836. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven uh, came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, and just thank you. We give you praise that, that we can gather here today. Uh, we, can, we can smile and, and encourage one another with our presence. We thank you that we can hear from your word together and be, be shaped by it. We pray, um, Lord, that you would, you, would, you would show us who you really are. You'd show us the real you, that we would encounter the real Jesus this morning in this passage of Scripture, and, and that that would we continue to do the work of, of transforming our hearts and lives to, to look more like you, to reflect your glory back to you, um, and to be wholly devoted to you in every way. We pray this in, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. There's a lot in these verses, right? Um, and we don't just really get a, an enormous view of Jesus, but I don't, I don't know if you caught this, but we get an enormous view of the Trinity, the triune God right here in this, the, these verses, right? The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three persons. One God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are in this eternal relationship of just love and worship with one another. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what the word Trinity means when we say Trinity. And you won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible, and yet you'll find the Trinity everywhere in the Bible, right? And very notably right here in these verses at, at the baptism of Jesus. And, and what we see here is that God is community, right? God is community, that your deepest need is to be brought in to that community, and, and that Jesus is the one who can bring you in. He's the one who can bring you in. So first, God is community, Right? Where do we see the Trinity? Look at verses 10 and 11 again. And when he came up out of the water, that's Jesus at his baptism, right? Uh, and he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Well, very clearly, Jesus, right? God the Son. I mean, that's how Mark introduces him at the very first verse of this chapter. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there's God the Son, right? The Spirit, very clearly, right? The Spirit descending on him in the form of, of a dove, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit. And then the voice, the voice coming from, from heaven. That's God the Father. And notice they're all here together at the same time. Right, all present simultaneously. So the Trinity is not some doctrine of one God who kind of like, you know, changes clothes, shapeshifts, morphs, you know, wonder twin powers activate, shape of a dove. Right? And nobody watched the Super Friends. I'm old. Um, right? So that was a thing. Look that up. It, it's a really embarrassing cartoon that I admit that I watched when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, so they would, they would get together and say, form of a whatever, and then they became that thing. That's not what's going on with the Trinity here, right? The, the, the idea that God kind of like shapeshifts, manifests himself in these different forms, different persons, a la the shack or whatever, um, is a heresy called modalism, 
right? It very much is dismissed with a plain reading of the scriptures, yet still present today in, in, in our world, right? In oneness Pentecostalism, the kind of, you know, Jesus-only kind of movement that, that kind of believes in, in modalism, baptizing only in the name of Jesus. Some of those things can be signs that that might be a, a thing going on there. Um, and that's just not a right biblical understanding of the Trinity, the Trinity is one God who is three persons who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with one another. In other words, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been and they always are, they always will be. They always are, are in existence, etern- eternally together, right? And they're here together. The Father speaks his approval over his, over his beloved Son, Jesus, while the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And, and we read that like the, the spirit descending like a dove, and that, that language isn't like, oh, wow, okay, I'm fine, that spirit's like a dove here, right? Because in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about the spirit descending like a dove. So it's kind of common, a common image for us. But in Mark's day, in Mark's day, that would be pretty rare. In fact, there's really only one place that, that they would have seen this kind of imagery of the spirit and, and like, likened to a dove. And that was in kind of these, the, the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible called the Targums that the Jewish people had during that time. And the one place they'd really see that in those Targums is in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Right? In our Bibles, we read Genesis 1, 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering. Over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And that Hebrew word hovering kind of carries with it this connotation like a a mother bird just kind of like fluttering over her young, right? So so this idea of fluttering, right? And and Genesis 1-2 could be said that the spirit was fluttered, right, over the face of the waters. So the rabbis translating the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, writing these targums, made this image even more vivid. And they wrote Genesis 1, 1, and, uh, 1 through 3, kind of like this. And the earth was without form and, and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. All right? And so just like at the baptism uh, of Jesus, all three persons of the Trinity are present uh, there. They're, they're present right here at the creation of the world. Right? You have God, God, the God, God's Spirit, and God's Word working together to bring about the creation of the universe and everything that there is. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and the Word, which in the first chapter of John's Gospel, he makes the clear indication the Word was with God, He is God, He was there in the beginning. The Word is, the Word made flesh, come to dwell among us. Jesus is the eternal Word, the eternal Son of God. So the Trinity is, at front, is front and center in both of these scenes here. And here in Mark, we see the Father who is the voice, the Son who is the Word, the Spirit fluttering like a dove once more. And, and with this wording, Mark is kind of making a little bit of this connection for us. And he's kind of pointing to us to this reality, like, just as creation was the work of a triune God, the triune God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as creation was the work of that one God who's three persons, so is redemption. Redemption is a Trinitarian work. It's the work of the triune God. And our deepest need for rescue from our sin, from our slavery to sin, our slavery to death, 
that's beginning right here with Jesus arriving on the scene for his baptism. Mark is making this clear connection. It's the work of the Godhead. The one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God the Father has planned your rescue from eternity past. He sent his Son, and the Son is now here, Mark is telling us, to, to live, to die, to rise, to accomplish the work of your redemption. And the Spirit comes into you and awakens you and enlivens you and enables you to even cling, just cling on to that and, and receive it. Right? So, so that's what's going on here. Well, why does this matter? Why, why, is, it, why is it so significant? Well, as we said, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God who eternally exists as three persons, not three gods, one God, three persons. Right? It's mysterious. And if you're looking for like a good illustration to explain it, there isn't one. Right? Every illustration, like the ones you got in your, if you grew up in church, I didn't. But if you grew up in church in the youth ministry illustrations of like, you know, like the, the, the states of water. But that's actually modalism. That's not a good Trinitarian um, illustration. So like it's just hard to explain. There's a mystery here. But Tim Keller has a great quote that I think is helpful for us to just try to wrestle with. He says, God is not more fundamentally one than he is three. And he is not more fundamentally three than he is one. One God, three persons, in this eternal, perfect relationship of love and worship. And you see a little glimpse of this in Mark, right? What does the Father do when, when Jesus comes out of the water? Right, The Father like glorifies his Son, right? He just like... This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Like, it's just reflecting love and worship and adoration at the son. And the spirit's coming and just bringing power upon him and resting on him. That's what's happening here. This small glimpse of what life is like in the, in the relationship within the Godhead. Within the one God who's three persons. This perfect relationship of just perfect love perfect worship, perfect adoration, reflecting glory back and forth to one another. Uh, C.S. Lewis is really particularly helpful. And honestly, in this, this message today, uh, what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity and then what, what Tim Keller then takes from C.S. Lewis and says in his book, Jesus the King, uh, is really helpful here. But, but this language comes from, from C.S. Lewis a little bit. Uh, he says this, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance, right? The, the image of a dance going on within the Godhead, just orbiting around one another, reflecting love and worship and, and, and back and forth. And, and I don't know if you heard anything about this, but there was like an eclipse or something this week, right? Um, probably nobody took any pictures or went blind, hopefully, um, <laughs> Right, but how does an eclipse happen? Well, it's like, so there's the sun, and the earth is like orbiting around the sun, and the, the moon is orbiting around the earth, and everything just kind of lines up. It's, it's, it's sort of like a dance, you know? That's kind of the idea that, that, that C.S. Lewis is getting around, that, there's, that within the Godhead, there's sort of this, this dance going around. Just con- they're constantly orbiting around each other, reflecting love and worship back at each other. Jesus says it like this, John 17, verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth to the Father, right, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there's life in the Trinity. Father, Son, Spirit just 
in this perfect love and worship with one another. Just overflowing with, with joy and, and, and glory and love. And so here's what we need to get from that is that God lacks nothing in and of himself, right? He, I mean, he doesn't, he's not needing relationship with us. God's not lonely. So then it's like, why does God create the, the world? Well, God, God creates the world out of the overflow of that love, out of the overflow of that. And just like, because there's just so much, it just pours over right? and invites us into that opportunity to, to be in relationship, right? So God's not looking for us to come and complete him, right? Like Jerry Maguire, you complete me, kind of, right? He's, that's not what's going on. He's already complete and of himself, but we're just invited in, right? We're created and invited in to join in that, to, to come orbit around God, to, to reflect glory and love and worship back at God and, and do that. God is community. That's the first thing we see here, the Trinity. And your deepest need is to be in community with God. Your deepest need is to be in community. So the picture we see in Genesis is this one God, three persons, who's three persons, creating the universe. And out of the overflow, we're created. Um, And it's clear from those very opening pages in those first two chapters of of Genesis that God creates us to kind of join in the the C.S. Lewis language of that dance, right, that's been going on for all eternity. And he creates us to live in this perfect fellowship in the Garden of Eden. The first man, the first woman, to just be in perfect fellowship with God, to to center their lives on him. And from that, to find just all kinds of fullness of love and life and joy being poured right back into them as they they give all the glory to God. They they live their lives centered on him. That's what's what's happening. Well, and then God tells them in Genesis 2 about this tree, right? And it seems really arbitrary, the, the whole commandment, like don't eat from this tree or everything in all of the history of the world gets wrecked right? Don't eat from a tree. Like, why, why do, am I not supposed to eat from the tree? Why doesn't he tell them why they're not supposed to eat from the tree? Well, he doesn't tell them because then, then they wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't really be about God anymore. It'd be about them doing what's best for them, right? And so it's really an invitation to just trust God. It's an invitation to just love God, to live for God. And of course, they, they don't, right? They, they wreck it. They choose self instead of self-glory instead of the glory of God. They choose to try to get God to come around them. They choose to try to get everything to come around them. And, and, and when I say them, we, right? Because that's what we all do. We've, we've all rejected life in God's kingdom under God's rule and sought to be our own king, to have our own kingdom, and to make everything and everyone, anything around us revolve around us. We want to be the center of the universe, and we reject not being, right? We reject orbiting around God. And immediately, sin and death enter the world. Why? Why is that the result? Well, because if life and love and joy find their source in the, the triune God, in that fellowship, that's where that all comes from. The moment that you break off from that, the moment you cut yourself off from that, it, you begin to die. That's where life and love and hope and joy and peace, it's all found there. And so you and I desperately need to be in a right relationship with God, to be reconnected, re- regrafted into that, that dance, to that fellowship, so that we can once again give Him glory and receive the life and the, and the love that He has for us. 
C.S. Lewis, again, kind of continues. He says it like this. He explains what's going on. He says, what, what does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us. Each one of us has got to enter that pattern, take his place in that dance. There, there is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Joy, power, peace, eternal life, all those things, they are, they are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. Right? If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Right? And in our sinful self-centeredness, we reject that. We, we step away from that. And the result is death. Eternal separation from God. Judgment is coming. Right? That's the setting here in Mark. Right? It says, Jesus rolls up. In verse 9, right, in those days, like in the days of John the Baptist, John the Baptist is out here preaching this message of repent, right? He's coming. Repent of your sin. The message is judgment is coming for your sin. You need to turn from your sin. You're going to die in your sin. And not just a physical death, but you're going to suffer eternal separation from God for eternity. That's what eternal means, right? (laughs) You're going to be cut off from that. John's message is repent, repent. Your chief sin in this is that you've sought to make yourself the center of the universe. The, the, the primary sin that we are guilty of is disbelief, not trusting God, that he is the source, that he is the one, the glorious one, the one worthy of our worship. That we do not trust him, we do not take him at his word. That's, that's the first sin, disbelief and death is coming as a result of that. That's what awaits you apart from God. You desperately need to be brought back into fellowship with him. How can that happen? Well, Mark is telling us here, he's pointing us to the reality that Jesus is the one. Jesus is the one who can bring you in. He's the only one who can bring you in. Why does Jesus need to be baptized by John? Right? The answer is, like, well, he, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, this needs to happen to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus says. But why does Jesus need to be baptiz- baptized with a baptism of repentance, right? He doesn't. He has nothing to repent for. There is no sin in him. There, there's no need for him to, to partake in a baptism of repentance because his soul needs that. Like, his soul does not. His soul is pure and holy and righteous and good. Right? He, he, he is the only one who is good and righteous and holy. He's showing us in that moment that he's our deliverer. That he's coming to identify himself with us. He is willingly stepping into the mess with us. And he's saying, I will, I will be your representative. Right? Just as Adam... And Romans 5 talks about Adam's kind of our, our federal head, right? He's our, he's our representative. And in his sin, we all sin and got, we, we all suffer the results of that. Well, Jesus is coming at his baptism and saying, I will now be your representative. I will identify myself with you. And I will live for you the life you cannot live. Right? 
So how, how's he going to do it? How's he going to deliver us? How's he going to bring us back into this right fellowship and community with God? Look again at verses 12 and 13. It says, The Spirit immediately following the baptism, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, we've kind of made this connection, right? I, and I, you know, the... the, the Mark and, and Genesis 1 and 2, uh, you know, kind of the connection between creation and the baptism here. Um, and so, and we mentioned this already, but right after creation, after God speaks everything into existence, the, the, the triune God brings the world into being, brings life into being, human, human life into being. What happens next? Well, Genesis 3, Satan shows up, Satan tempts in the garden, right? Well, right here in Mark, Trinity is present. Jesus is baptized. What happens next? Satan shows up. Temptation, trial. But that's where all the similarities end. Right? First Adam in the garden. Second Adam, Jesus Christ, out in the wilderness. Right? You know, perfect garden where you know, the imagery we can kind of like get from Genesis 2 is life in the garden is like you know, the lions and the lambs like laying next to each other. We're good. I'm not going to eat you today. Um, You know, we're all right. And so that's kind of the fellowship. But then here's Mark saying, Jesus, out with the wild animals. And he's making this really clear to us, I think, that he wants to make this clear to us, that, that, that what Adam went through and what Jesus is going through, like Jesus' test is infinitely harder. Like he's not, he's not in this garden of perfect, everything's perfect before the fall, perfect when the temptation comes, he's out in the wilderness, out in the wild, with the wild animals. And then Mark doesn't give us all the details, right? He just says Satan tempts. Jesus is in the wilderness, 40 days. But you can read more about it in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. kind of gives you an account of what Satan does. But essentially, Satan comes, and what he's tempting Jesus to do is to basically step out of that community of the Godhead. To stop reflecting and orbiting around the Father and the Spirit and, and being within that perfect community of love and worship and to step out and make it all about Him. Right? You know, step out and, and make Himself the sinner alone. To break off from that. Satan comes, he says, Hey, it's been 40 days of fasting. Right? You're hungry. You don't need to wait on the Father to give you what you need. Right? Just turn those stones into bread. T- take a bite. Right? Take care of yourself. You can take care of yourself. You don't need to be in that fellowship. Right? Satan comes to Jesus, takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Right? Throw yourself down, for God will come and rescue you. Just do it. Right? Make him come center himself on you. Put him, put him to the test. Right? Satan comes, says, look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, get out of that dance with the Godhead and make it all about you. Stop orbiting around the other persons of the Trinity and make it all about you. Make them all orbit around you only. And where the first Adam failed and was like, okay, I'll get out. I'll make it all about me. That sounds good. The second Adam rejected the temptation, right? He, he, he succeeds. He resisted. He remains faithful. But the temptation doesn't stop at verse 13. As we go through Mark's gospel, Mark in, in many ways even records this more, but, but Satan will continue to just barrage Jesus with, with 
trials, 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 right? He will continue just to face attack from Satan. There's so many, like casting out demons and unclean spirits, all that stuff through Mark's gospel. And all of that test climaxes in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The one final test. And in that garden, right, like the garden before, where God says, right, there's this tree, don't eat from it or you'll die. Well, God comes to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's like, there's a cross, there's another tree, and you will die, right? Believe me, do this, obey. And Jesus does, he obeys, and in that moment, our sinless Savior passes that that final test of, of the temptation there. And he goes to the cross and he willingly dies in our place. He pays our debt for sin in full. And by his death and resurrection, he invites you into the right relationship, right fellowship, community with the Trinitarian God, the triune God, the one God who is three persons. On the cross, Jesus began to kind of reflect all that, reflect to you all of that love and perfect love, perfect peace, perfect joy. And so the question for us today, the question for you is, have you received that? Like he's made it possible for you to come join the dance, if you will. Have you stepped into it? Have you received it? Have you entered it? Have you given all of yourself to him? You know? Because this is the thing, right? What what, what he's asking for is not for us to say, well, I'm here on Sunday. I believe in Jesus, you know, and and when things get really crappy later this week, I'll lift up some prayers because things are hard and I'll pray to him, you know. I need some inspiration, so I'll read the Bible for a little bit and then shut it, right? That's not what Jesus is asking for. That's not the invitation to step into the fellowship with the triune God. The invitation is to bring your whole life to be centered on him, right? To give all of ourselves to him. That's a very different thing. And so the question is, have you brought your life to center on God? Or are you still operating as if you're the center of the universe and trying to get God to kind of come around fill in the gaps, you know, orbit around you a little bit. And when we dig deep, I think that, you know, really everything that's going on in our world all the time, I mean, every week, just conflict, the conflict between nations and governments, the conflict between races and people groups, and the conflict between, you know, know, conservatism and liberalism and every other ism that there is, right? All of those things, the group identity wars over all kinds of things, income brackets, all of it at its core is really incited and kind of proliferated by this selfish, sinful desire that exists in every single one of us to make it all about me, make it all orbit around me. I want to be the center of the universe. And that sin is in all of us. It's in all of us. And Mark makes it clear that Satan is not some, you know, mythical unicorn, leprechaun, right? He's not something, some being that was invented by these really archaic, pre-scientific societies who are like, let me have a good excuse for the evil that I do, right? That's not where Satan comes from. He's not something that has been invented to explain away evil. The Bible is, is very straightforward. There are very real forces of evil at work in this world, Right now, and chief among them is Satan himself, whose one sole desire is to tempt you to 
devour you, to get you completely away from God, to, to get you alone, isolated, where it's all about you, to, to break you off in any way he possibly can from orbiting your life around God. And so on our own, here's where we're at. We're wrecked in our sin, and we have no possibility of, of establishing on our, by our own efforts, like going to church, reading the Bible, whatever we do. We have no way of getting right with God and re- restoring that relationship. And then we have this very real enemy at the same time who's out to keep us from God, out to, to lead us astray, out to kind of break us down and destroy us. We're hopelessly lost on our own. And the only hope for us is Jesus. Not some made-up Jesus who gives you a pat on the back every time you do whatever you want to do, but the real Jesus, the real Jesus. And only he can bring you into community with God, into contact with with the life and the love and the joy and the peace and the hope that you are looking for. It's all in him. I, I just I get into so many conversations with people where it's just like, well, Christianity is just another religion. It's just another religion. But do you realize how different it is, right? The, the religions of the world, you know, to, to stereotype them, whatever deity or deities are worshipped, essentially it's this: like, here's how to be right with me. Do these things, be right with me. Do these things, don't do these things, be right with me. But but in Christianity, it's 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 something entirely different than that. And some of you think, like, that's what this book is. Do this, don't do that, you'll be right with him. That's not what this is. This is, a, this is a book that tells us about the only way to be right with God, that is Jesus. It's pointing to our inability to ever get ourselves right with God, and it's pointing us to the one, the only one, who can get us right with God. Because here's the unique thing. Our God, he didn't just give us a message and say, do this, don't do this. He stepped into it with us. The Father is a triune project here. The Father loved you enough to sought you before he even made you that he sent his son. And the son willingly came, stepped in, suffered, endured temptation. So he, he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be tempted. And he lived on in your behalf the, the only perfect life that you never could. And then he willingly went to the cross and died in your place for your sins and rose victorious over, the, over sin and death to accomplish your rescue. And then God, the Holy Spirit, comes into your heart, renews you, brings you a life, uh, alive to faith in, in Christ. Right? That's something entirely different. It's not about what you're going to do to get yourself right with God. It's what Jesus has already done, what the triune God has already done to make a way for you to be in right relationship with him. Will you step into that? Will you receive it? Right? You, you, you see in the book of Hebrews, what a wonderful thing we have in Christ, right? We have a king, a savior, a God who understands what it is to face temptation. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He not only understands, but he can help Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, For we do not have a high priest,